This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 742, Flashback, Spider-Man, the next chapter. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 742. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is another solo episode as I take a flashback to uh, Spider-Man, the next chapter. Um, so Spider-Man, the next chapter is really what it is, is talking about um, the first major kind of relaunch of the Spider-Man titles. Uh, this would have happened, I guess, 97, 98. Um, so basically you had... It's interesting, actually, that didn't happen earlier. So you had the Spider-Man titles went through the Clone Saga. They went through the period post-Clone Saga, which is really underrepresented in terms of collections. There's been a smattering here and there. There are some old ones where um, you have the Mike Rango, Todd DeZago stuff, where uh, they have uh, Peter go to the Savage Land, which was actually an original trade paperback way back in the day. Um, And then you had, like, Spider-Hunt, Identity Crisis, and I've actually done episodes on those before uh in previous episodes of flashbacks where i've looked at those um actually this is kind of an interesting episode for me to record in some ways because i was looking at prior flashbacks i'd done and i realized that um about almost three years ago back in episode 486 i did a flashback to uh, spider-man gathering of five in the final chapter now that's the storyline so it was 98 actually i'm just reminding myself that's the storyline that actually saw the ending of these books so again you had this post clone saga period and then you had ramping up to this gathering of five in the final chapter and then everything came down so you went from having four regular books to now having two so you will go to from having, uh, what was it, Sensational Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, Ejectable Spider-Man, and Amazing Spider-Man. And now you just have Peter Parker, Spider-Man, and Amazing Spider-Man. That's it. Now, you're going to have a shit ton of miniseries, and you're going to have books like Slingers that are ten, uh, you know kind of on the periphery of the Spider-Man universe, especially that one. Because um, it really, besides the costumes itself, had nothing to do with the Spider-Man universe. We have all the, and they have like web spinners, and like all these other books will come out. But in terms of mainline this is the continuity for Spider-Man. You just have the two. And it, in some ways, it kind of, you know, it predates the thinking that would eventually come about in, in Brand New Day. So Brand New Day, when it happened, besides also kind of resetting the clock and really trying to do something different with the Spider-Man mythos and take away something that had been there for over 20 years, what really what it was about is also, you know, instead of making people buy three or four monthly books, what if we just have one book three times a month? This is similar where you have two books but one narrative. Now, especially at the beginning... You have Howard Mackey writing both, but on one he's collaborating with John Byrne, who's also doing the art, so there's more of a plotting and an art um, sensibility there. And the other issue he's doing, you know, the, Howard Mackey is, is doing all the writing, and you have someone else actually doing all the art. Um, so you have a, more of a consistent voice among the two, so you don't have continuity issues, and that was big. Uh, you weren't going to have continuity issues between the two titles because the same guy is writing it, so you shouldn't have any conflicts, um, which is definitely a simplification because when you had four books, you never had the same people working on them. Uh, especially when Peter Parker Spider-Man launched, you had John Amita Jr. and Scott Hanna were the uh, the art team. They were the pencil and inker, respectively. So you had a great creative team on Peter Parker Spider-Man. And then on, on the regular Amazing Spider-Man book, you had a team that had a lot of pedigree. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that, at that point in time, maybe wasn't the great fit. Um, so you had John Byrne and Scott Hanna doing the, the story and art. 
sorry, they were doing the art portion of that. I was reading from the the full story and art credits, which is includes Howard Mackey amongst them. Um, so this all comes off of what we saw in the Gathering of Five in the final chapter. So if you want to kind of get a remembering what happened in those storylines, go back, listen to episode 486 where I talk about those two books, and then come back to here. Now this episode, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but I am talking basically about 36 issues of comics, um, which are in these next chapter volumes one to three trades, which I resisted buying them for years, mainly because I just thought they were overpriced. Um, I didn't think the, the material in them was that great, and I owned it all. And I remember at the time being really excited about you know having a brand new number one for Amazing Spider-Man back before this was super passe and it happens all the time. So I was really just really pumped for this new book and really to jump on board. Plus, I loved Gathering a Five in the final chapter. I liked a lot of the post-Cologne saga stuff because that's when I first really started reading, reading Spider-Man. So I always have an affinity for that period, and I miss the, the characters of the period. I like, miss the, the sensibilities of all the different titles. I, I just like them all and I thought they all did bring you something different but obviously sales ended up agreeing that you know maybe this is too much so two books paired down singular vision could have been a bit a better vision but that's a whole other story so I resisted getting these next chapter trades for years so what finally made me change my mind well a big part of that well first of all the epic collections were a big thing so I remember buying this would have been what 10 11 years ago when I got my that wasn't my first omnibus but it was definitely one of the first ones where I bought the amazing spider-man volume one now if I could go back it was uh the 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 cover of the dust jacket had been slightly weather beaten uh, I think it was in an, in someone's uh, not in a great place to put a dust jacket I think it was getting some direct sunlight so I, I think it's a little yellowed um, and I think it was also on a shelf so I feel like it just kind of expanded more than it normally would have um, so it always looks like one of my bigger omnibuses also it was the older paper it was thicker etc it has the, the nice kind of um, feel to the kind of the fake leather not leather but you know what I mean like there's there's more to those old omnibuses that feel a certain way um, and I, I, so I, I'd start buying Amazing Spider-Man and Omnibus because I felt like the way to do it because I wasn't going to buy an essential and the epics weren't on the on the on the scene yet. And then eventually they brought in the epics, so I'm starting to fill in all these. You know, the idea. Everyone, no one's really sure of this, but everyone kind of thinks that the Spider-Man epics will go up to the Clone Saga and then stop. We have no reason to really be sure of this, but we just think that that's what's going to happen because the Clone Saga is impossible to not do the way they already did it. Um, although you could change the chronology because I think that's something that always bugged me about if you read the Clone Saga trades you would get some revelations way up front that you shouldn't have but regardless at least they're all there so the idea with the Amazing Spider-Man is I'm like okay well if it's going to go to the Clone Saga epics I have all those and I got the Ben Reilly epics so I, I had that entire period because that meant a lot to me when they started putting them out and I was really excited and that again predated the epic collections coming into, into play so I was really excited about that so I'm like, okay, well, eventually I'm going to buy all these amazing Spider-Man epic collections. Not even a question. I'm going to have all of this. So that's going to get me up to, what, issue 393 or so, which is where the Clone Saga starts. Clone Saga actually, sorry, officially starts in Amazing Spider-Man in issue 394. So then in 394 onwards, I have the Clone Saga, and then it ends. And then you have this weird period, which is, as I said before, has been underrepresented and not well collected. And that bugs me. But then I realize, okay... I have, and again at the time, I had everything in singles, so I didn't really care about going back and getting collections. However, at some point, and I think this might have been around when Superior Spider-Man came out, I started buying the Superior Spider-Man trades. 
I don't know why I started doing this, but I did. And I was like, I want to be able to have this on my bookshelf and not just in single issues. I think this is when I started to feel differently about single issues and wanted to have bookshelf stuff, books, easier, you know, easy to read, large swaths of, of material. So I started buying those, and I, I, I can't remember all the chronologies, but at the time, I had resisted for years getting the Ultimate uh, Collections by JMS, which I'm stupid, um, but I kept putting it off for years, and it's like, oh, I don't really know if I want to have that. I already have it in trades. I, I was sorry, in singles, I don't need the trades. What a dumb thought that was. But that at some point, I ha- again, I have all the superior Spider-Man and forward stuff in trade as they come out in the kind of the thin, thin trades, which are not a good deal, but you never know what you're going to get later. So I just kind of took a chance on it. And then they started doing like the, the big time trades and the big meaty collections. The first one was called the big time ultimate collection. It doesn't even have a number on mine. And then you have the, the numbered onwards. And then they start doing brand new day and they're filling in the blanks. So I'm like, okay, well, I got to go backwards. So I, I can't remember all the chronologies on when I started getting everything, but I started... Um, once this was becoming clear that I was, you know, dumb for not getting the JMS, so I'm still missing a volume five like many, which is heartbreaking. Um, so I have issues one to four of that, sorry, volumes one to four of that. And then I have everything brand new day up that they published so far. We're getting the gauntlet volume one soon, and there should be, hopefully be another volume after that. Once they publish that, I have everything from big time forward. Um, and then once it, now this is one of those things that bugs me and it's stupid, is that when they were doing big time and they had the last volume of big time, and it, it printed an alpha miniseries that was set during the Superior Spider-Man era, which makes no sense. But they also did not include Dying Wish, which ostensibly is the beginning of the Superior Spider-Man era, but also is the end of the big time era. How do you not end with Spider-Man's death in that book? Which bugged the hell out of me. Anyways, for my uh, Christmas present this past year on my wish list, I had put the uh, big time ultimate, sorry, not big time, the Superior Spider-Man Complete Collection Volume 1, which... Again, because I have OCD now, I need volume two, and you cannot find it. And it is out of print and brutally expensive. And theoretically, I really don't need it at all. I finally have the Dying Wish issues that I needed that I could have bought the original um, thin Dying Wish trade, but I was like, ah, it's too expensive right now to buy. It's only got like four issues in it. And it was ended up with this complete collection, which now eliminates the need for some of the single trades I have, but I can't get rid of them until I have the other Superior Spider-Man Complete Collection. These are the types of crazy OCD issues we have as collectors and trying to figure out the right formats and wanting big, thick formats where possible. It's 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 a problem. Um, what does this all have to do with the next chapter, which I barely even talked about? Great question. So at some point, I think when I got the JMS volumes, I decided it was actually it was predominantly because they announced that they were going to release a lot of the Amazing Spider-Man stuff that had been orphaned between the beginning of JMS and the end of the next chapter, which they'd start, stopped after Chapter 3. They were going to do Revenge of the Green Goblin, and it was going to have all that material getting you up to JMS. So then I'm like, well, shit, maybe someday I'll end up with Volume 5 of the JMS collection. Once I do, I'll have everything from that point forward, so I have to go backwards now. So I have to have from the beginning of Chapter 1... Uh, it's not chapter one, next chapter, um, so that I can have everything from that point in 1998 forward in trades, and then hopefully, eventually, they will collect the period from post-Clone Saga to there, and then I already have the Clone Saga in trades, so eventually, I want to have everything in soft cover, and it's possible to do it, because they're getting so close to filling in all the gaps. And plus, the Epic Collection is more of a, it's a, a when scenario, not an if scenario, so as long as I buy everything when it comes out, I don't have to worry about out-of-print volumes, and so I'll eventually, that's my hope, have everything in Amazing Spider-Man in softcover format on my shelf. And then whenever my son, if he ever cares enough to read it all, it can be like, okay, let's start at the beginning, you crazy kid. Good luck, and I'll talk to you in a few years. <laughs> so that's my plan. So when I bought Next Chapter 1, 2, 3, I'm pretty sure I bought them online. I think it was eBay. I can't remember. And or somewhere relatively cheap. But 
in order to get them, if you've ever, if you're a Canadian and you're trying to ship something to Canada from the U.S., it's always stupidly expensive. So I was able to actually, I was doing a trip. I'm trying to remember the exact trip, and I feel like it was when I was in Disneyland. I can't remember this for sure, and I'm pretty sure a friend of the show, AJ Reese, is the one who was my mule in this case in terms of getting the volumes for me relatively cheap, and then uh, with cheap shipping for him, sending it to me, and then me bringing it back over the border. And I think my wife was like, "You're bringing those with you? Are you worried about you know you know weight constraints in our luggage?" But uh, suddenly I had uh, three big collections that were waiting for me at the hotel. And I was so excited until I cracked them up and I remembered they're not great. But I have fond memories. So let's talk about next chapter. So again, as a kid, I as a kid, I was been about 15 years old when these books were coming out. So, uh, you know, still in formative years. Again, I've talked before, I was kind of late to comics in a lot of ways. I wasn't really buying comics for myself regularly till maybe 96. Um, so I was like 12, 13 years old before I really got in. and But at this point, I was in. I was reading, like, I used to have Marvel Vision. I think that was around this period that was kind of promoting what was coming up. I remember some of the Marvel magazines that they had. I remember the, the house ads promoting this brand new new chapter of Spider-Man. And it was exciting at the time. Um, and, you know, I knew of names like Burn. I didn't really experience Burn yet, but I knew of the name. I knew it was a big enough deal to be excited. That being said, I also knew Burn had done the final chapter, and I wasn't super, you know, pumped about that, but excited for a new direction, excited for, you know, something all new. Uh, unfortunately, it just it never really felt like it understood what it wanted to be. Um, although it's interesting to go back now, and you can see elements that were kind of borrowed or, or elaborated on or definitely ended up being done in Spider-Man later, and argu- not even arguably, to much better effect. Um, like, it all starts with the idea of, like, where is Spider-Man? The Spider-Man, you know, after after what happened in Final Chapter and the, and the return of Matt May kind of ditched the costume, decided I'm not going to be Spider-Man anymore. It's not my responsibility and moves on. And you have Mary Jane's, a, you know, a supermodel again, so they have a lot of money. So you have Spider-Man kind of dealing with something different. Um, you know, not, now he's able to live and, you know, Aunt May's back looking very classically Aunt May. And it, that part's kind of weird. But it is nice to see... In general, it's just uh, there's a part of me that likes to see Peter and MJ still being a couple and still getting along, and that's kind of nice. Um, big part of the first issue is again all about Spider-Man missing and Human Torch is trying to kind of find him. Like, where are you, Spidey? Uh, you have this redesign of Scorpion, which thankfully doesn't last too long. It's a weird design too, because it's like this weird like blue and green monstrosity. Uh, it doesn't last very long, but I'm pretty sure it made it into at least one video game, unfortunately. Uh, you have Spider-Man showing up, and the big question is, you know, who is this Spider-Man? Because the real Spider-Man is, you know, not not out there. Uh, the real Spider-Man is doing something different. Uh, yeah, Peter is joining um, a company, the Tricor Research Foundation. Uh, it's not, Now, tell me if this sounds familiar. Suddenly, Peter Parker gets a, you know, a plum job working at a private brain trust with unlimited resources, which services a playground for the best of the best of the country's scientific minds. Now, this is how it's described in the book. And if you thought I was talking about Horizon Labs in the Dan Slott era in big time, you would, you know, I would forgive you because, yeah, this is very similar. Um, even some of the designs, you almost have like a character that looks like it could be um, kind of a, a thinner version of the future Max model. Uh, it's just interesting to kind of read it now and see, that, you know, it's basically Horizon Labs, but not done as, as well. Or not done with as much thought into fleshing out the characters in that world. Um, but again, this whole kind of first issue is about, you know, Peter trying to figure out who is Spider-Man. 
which is kind of weird for because obviously for most of his life he was Spider-Man. Um, you have a backup story in the first issue, which is by Howard Mackey and Raphael Cannon, and it's all about um, the Scorpion and kind of redoing the Scorpion and why he gets the new costume. It's filler. Um, there is some stuff I do like. There's a, a this is all from the first issue because it had a lot of bonus content. Yeah, the Secrets of Spider-Man uh, kind of. Uh, backup story this is by uh, john byrne doing the writing and the art and john callis uh doing the colors and uh actually ralph macchio was the editor on this and this felt more classic burn to me in terms of the art maybe it's because he was kind of aping ditko um and kind of his own work on the ff at some point but just kind of showing things elements about spider-man and his own life although it does add in one of the worst things that was ever added to dr octopus which is this weird extra kind of weird metal and look and like the the he had these weird boots that would eventually be added in these weird goggles like it was and from what i remember it was kind of concurrent with spider-man chapter one which is kind of a a redefining of the storyline of of how peter became spider-man and kind of redoing kind of a kind of an ultimate would be later but supposed to still be the core continuity and it was just never well perceived not very good to be honest um, it took a lot of liberties, and some of them were interesting in, in concept. The idea of like kind of trying to merge the origins of Doctor Octopus and Spider-Man—they're both kind of these radioactive issues. So instead of having it be two separate events, why don't you have it be one event, uh, one you know, um, you know radiation experiment? Uh, but it just—it ends up being so much more explosive too. Whereas the original creation of Spider-Man was very incidental the spider just kind of shows up and you know there's not this big explosion and then the spider doing it and even the biggest i guess transgression i would say of chapter one is that you have the burglar really having to explain to peter in a way that you know that basically that it's peter's fault that he's there which is so weird because in the original stan just kind of understood how to very easily make you understand that peter was responsible and uh, for you know the burglar getting away and then eventually killing his uncle in a way that just made sense as opposed to you know having to really spell it out. Um, now, in Peter Parker Spider Man, you have well right from the get go you have a character, a new character called the Ranger, uh, who's not a very well kind of thought out villain, but you have some great art by John Romita Jr. Like it just, I, I would say the book just lives better because of John Romita's artwork. Like, you can forgive some of the ham-handedness of the artwork, sorry, of the uh, writing and the cheesiness at times uh, because, and it just feels like when Mackie is paired with with Romita, both of them are better. And the characters were more interesting and they had some more mysteries about, like, had this new character, this uh, this Senator Stuart Ward, which would go on for, like, two years. Um, Again, everything just felt more natural here. Uh, you had other characters, like Jill Stacy was still showing up, but this felt like Howard continuing the types of stories he was telling earlier. And again, you had a phenomenal artist. This was, you know, John Romita Jr. at, not his best per se, but damn good. Like, it didn't feel rushed. It felt really well put together. It was just exciting. Um, it's interesting. I just, uh, before this episode, recorded my last reviews episode, and I was talking about an issue of Action Comics that was penciled by John Romita Jr. with Klaus Janssen on inks, and it was a train wreck. It was just looked like it was so rushed, and that he didn't really have time to work on the book, but did it anyway, and it felt it, it really felt like it. Uh, whereas you go back and read something like this from over 20 years ago, and it's John Romita Jr. with Scott Hanna, and it just looks great. Like, it's still, it looks vibrant. It looks modern. Like, it's 20 years old, but... You know, besides some of the fact that the fashion choices, I think, are so subtle that they're not 
like back in the, like if you read some of the you know eighties comics and some of the the, the weird t shirts or um, muscle shirts that Peter wears are just ridiculous um, and it and it just doesn't it looks so not modern whereas you look at a book like this and it still crackles off the page um, the only issue I have with seeing this other version of Spider Man that's not Peter and Peter trying to figure out who this Spider Man is is that they don't really do a good job of setting up who it is um, or at least it doesn't feel that way. There's a great uh, sketchbook that is included with the, kind of from the back matter of Peter Parker's uh, Spider-Man number one. And you have this fantastic shot, which I think I guess was a cover sometime. I don't know. You got this shot of Peter Parker kind of looking a little despondent, but kind of looking into the into the horizon. Um, and he's standing on top of the building. And then you have this shot of Spider-Man kind of jumping behind him. I just really like that shot. Um, again, it's very cool to kind of see the models that John Meter Jr. is working for this book. His J. Jonah Jameson looks fantastic. Just the way he stands, the way he does the face, like it's just, it's so good. His, his Robbie Robertson, like I could just stare at these pages because um, they're phenomenal. Uh, even even the uh, the apartment that they have now is is given some interesting interesting layouts here, and I think you know it's just interesting to see how much design work went into this. Um, there's a Howard Mackey Andy Smith uh, story called Memories as a backup as well, which is all about a young Peter uh, remembering you know time was spent with uh, with Ben, and um, then we move on to the additional issues. Um, I'm not going to go through everything st- you know kind of stone by stone, but the first year is a weird year because it feels like they changed what the direction they want it to be uh, halfway through. And again, you have two books, very different feels, uh, even though they're by the same person, because one of them is, again, more driven by John Byrne and the other one isn't. Um, I would say that the non-John Byrne issues end up being much stronger. Um, what's interesting as well about these collections is that you also have an issue of, right after you have the, the, the debut issues of both books, you then have a random issue of Mighty Thor, um, issue number eight, and then this at the time was Dan Jurgens writing it with John Amita Jr. in pencils. And it's easy to forget that he did was doing both. And yet, I would say looking at the Thor issue, it feels like it got the short end of the, of the stick uh, in terms of how coherent some of the art was. But I think it was also just he had a different style he would employ for Thor, so I think some of the shortcuts kind of made sense or worked better. And uh, But yeah, Spider-Man kind of shows up and ends up teaming up with Thor um, against this demon um, who then duplicates, and then they have to figure out how they're going to fight them. And Aunt May is worried about where Peter is, blah, blah, blah. And then you go right into Peter Parker's Spider-Man number two, which again, at the time was, you know, the second issue out of the month, but I'm, so I'm curious as to why. I'm trying to remember why they would have done the placement here differently. But again, just looking at the art, Bermuda's artwork sings more on the uh, the, the Peter Parker Spider-Man issue, and then you go into Amazing Spider-Man Two, which again would have not would have come first. And again, it's more about this Spider-Man character uh, that Peter is trying to figure out you know, who is actually Spider-Man. Um, you got more of, I'm going to call it Horizon Labs, but whatever I, I said, this new company is that he works at. And you have Peter actually uncover the um, the mask and find out who this new Spider-Man is. And it turns out it's a woman with padding on um, and who isn't really, you know, spider character at all but actually is maddie franklin who got powers at the gathering of five and she got all these you know uh some limited flight and and uh super strength and durability and so she was pretending to be spider-man and then spider-man goes into action and i guess that's kind of why they ended up deciding to put it like this is because issues two and three go right back back to back in terms of um its own continuity whereas you know the peter parker issue just kind of goes where it needs to so that's why they ended up putting it this way um, 
which is interesting. Although, if you look at now, this is an interesting. Uh, I wonder if this is from. I guess this is from the original issues. It even says on sale now, Thor number eight, guest starring Spider Man, which leads directly into next week, Peter Parker number two, uh, which we just talked about. And it says next month, an amazing number two. It's going to take Spidey and Iceman to stop Shadrach. Um, we just read issue two, so no. Um, but issue three again, we got more artwork by uh, John Byrne and Scott Hanna now. Again, still doing inks. And it's just, it's I don't know what it is about John Byrne in this period. It just lacks something. I don't know if he was not going as detailed with his pencils. Like, it just, it lacked a certain energy. That being said, this issue was, I think, much better than the issue before it. And interesting to see uh, Iceman showing up as well. And then this one, again, says to be continued in the pages of Peter Parker's Spider-Man. So it's kind of weird that, you know, you have this weird you know, crossover with Thor and Spider-Man, which didn't really need to happen, and but you had the same artists on both, and then you had Amazing Spider-Man 2 and 3 going right into each other, but then going right into Peter Parker's Spider-Man, so again, that's you end up with this kind of weird chronology in this trade, which isn't what would have been the publication order, but it makes the most amount of sense uh, when putting it together, and again, the John Romita Jr. issues have so much energy and excitement to them. Uh, we finally have Spider-Man back in um, the costume, you have this new character, Shadrach, which turns out his relation to what happened during the Gathering of Five. So they're kind of picking up on those uh, plot lines, which is kind of interesting when you think about it, that you have this brand new launch, and the first thing you're doing is bringing in characters from the end of the last book. Kind of feels like a weird, you know, we could go in a whole totally new direction, but let's talk about the, you know, the stuff from the last run. Uh, you got Amazing Spider-Man number four. This brings in the Fantastic Four. And again, there's just something about the artwork by Byrne, which doesn't feel like as strong. Like he's he knows the Fantastic Four. He knows how to draw them, and yet they just never quite look right. Um, I mean, they look good, but they just don't look as right as they could. We finally have Spider-Man. Peter is Spider-Man again, and having to lie to Mary Jane about the fact that he is Spider-Man, which is not a plot element I liked, and seems kind of hackneyed. Like if they have such a great relationship, they should be able to talk about this. Um, yeah. And but again, in this issue, you have Peter and Jill spending time together, which is kind of weird. And you know, they spend Valentine's Day together, and then he gets home, and is you know, it's kind of weird to see Aunt May and Mary Jane just kind of you know just fought, had fallen asleep waiting for him. And then uh, you're trying to see there. I should mention that there's long running plot lines between the Senator Ward character and the Ranger character that was introduced in the Peter Parker Spider Man issue, uh, and that's going to take a long time to be resolved. There's a weird. Uh, Marrow appearance in Spider-Man 4 uh, by uh, Mackie and Bart Sears. I'm sorry, Bart Sears is, is no um, Johnny Jr. You have this new character, The Hunger, shows up, who's kind of a, a vampire-related character, uh, which is kind of, kind of weird and creepy. Uh, you got Amazing Spider-Man number 5, where you have Maddie Franklin putting on a different costume as Spider-Woman, and now embracing the fact that she is a woman and not just trying to be Spider-Man anymore. Um... That book actually ends up, that and Peter Parker 5, ends up bleeding into the new Spider-Woman series. And we have this new character, Charlotte Winter, um, which is a character who is related to, um, what's her name? Uh, Madam Web. So it's kind of some weird stuff. And again, Bart Sears ends up doing both issues of the crossover. Um is it both issues? It's hard to even tell which book I'm reading. Yeah, it's both issues. Um, again, it's if you're thinking this doesn't sound like the greatest book, it's not. Um, there's some great art in this trade uh, when you do have um, John Romita Jr. doing the art, but the stuff with um, John Byrne is really kind of runs the gamut. Um, but again, you're, you're reading this for the Peter Parker Spider-Man stuff. Issue 6 in particular, which is in here, you have some great... 
artwork on both Bullseye and Kingpin. So seeing them working together and seeing Spider-Man kind of get into Bullseye's crosshairs. And I don't think they've ever really come to, you know, fight each other before. It's really exciting. It's good imagery. Um, it's an exciting fight. And, uh, you know, again, very cool. And again, introducing more of the Senator Ward storyline, which ends up not really working out that well. You also have this moment that it almost looks like um, uh, Arthur Stacy dies, but he, spoiler alert, did not die. And then you have the Amazing Spider-Man annual from that year, from 99, which is not that good, but it's, you know, got the wizard, you got, um, you know, some weird kind of extra dimensional stuff, which is not usually in Spider-Man's purview, all about, again, some of the mysteries of this Ward character, and also the Ranger and the Trapster, and it's, if you, if it's, again, sounds like a mess, kind of is, and it never really gets a, a satisfactory conclusion. So when does this get better? Um, that's a great, great, great question. So chapter two, so the next chapter, volume two, um, this is has some issues that I remember a little bit more fondly. Uh, you do start off with some ridiculous stuff. You got uh, the Amazing Spider-Man number seven by uh, Howard Mackey and John Byrne called Brave New World. It's got this weird cover of Flash Thompson thinking he's like this great superhero. Uh, basically, he is secretly, um, you know, in this other world. Um, he's actually, you know, in a, a virtual reality kind of construct. And that's the issue of issue seven and eight are all about that. And that Peter and Flash and a bunch of others own these tubes and they have to kind of escape from that. Is it great? It really isn't. It's kind of, feels like it's been done before in different books, sort of in different types of stories. The art I found to be a little bit lackluster as well. Then we've got Peter Parker, Spider-Man number seven. It's got Mackie and Romita Jr. You're bringing in Blade. It's much better. Like it's, it, this is the stuff that I would say if you were going to pick up or interested in what Spider-Man was doing at this point in time, the Peter Parker Spider-Man are the issues to buy. Like it's got more sense of tone. Um, it just seems more gritty and, and cool. You got vampires are introduced and Blade, and you got this hunger character. When Bart Sears did him, he looked kind of ridiculous, but here he looks a lot more foreboding. Uh, there's just something about like they use smoke effects to great effect. Um, again, it just. It, it it comes off the page so much better, and you have this idea of this 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 trunk later that they're they're trying to find out what's in this trunk. Um, you got Jimmy Six being introduced so in issue eight. You have the secret revealed, a demon unleashed. You have Jimmy Six is back. Um, you have this classic idea thing that uh, feels like John Romita Jr. used to do all the time, where you'd have Spider Man kind of in this weird kind of web sack slash chair that he's webbed up for himself and he's kind of dangling in it while he's on on a cell phone uh which i don't know why it works as well as it does but it just does you have peter kind of infiltrating something you have uh there's a great part part where he kind of realizes that jill looks a lot like gwen he feels like they're going for maybe a romantic maybe will they won't they with jill but it never really goes anywhere and for good reason like he's married at the time it just seems weird to even have anything like that um but it feels like it's not really meant to happen but they just kind of want you to think it could again you have more awesome blade and spider-man action uh, you have him fighting the kingpin you have morbius ends up being uh trapped in this trunk and he looks awesome and more feral than ever um yeah no i mean it's just the issue's great and you also have this idea of this this person keeps calling and peter thinks that it's you know about him but really it's about mj and unfortunately that's not going to go anywhere good and not have a satisfactory resolution. But reading the issue, it's really interesting because you have, you know, Jimmy Six, you know, being a, a kind of an awesome badass, although suddenly being almost more giant than the Kingpin. And 
the idea that there's going to be this gang war. You have Peter wondering, like, what the hell's going on? Why does someone keep calling them? Not realizing it's more about MJ than himself, which makes sense for the character. It, again, the Peter Parker stuff sings. It's actually good. Like, it's interesting stuff. Uh, good characterization. It's Howard Mackey not being constrained by whatever John Byrne wants to do. Uh, then you have the Peter Parker Sp- uh, Spider-Man Annual. This is by, uh, actually, J.M. DeMatteis and Liam Sharp. Um, which is definitely worth reading. It's you know it's got some great artwork by Sharp. Um, it's Demetrius and you got Scryers involved, and it's a little bit crazy, um, but it's definitely enjoyable. I don't remember a lot of it, but I remember and you got Man Thing as well. Like it's it's got some cool stuff. It's Demetrius doing what Demetrius does. Uh, then you got Amazing Spider-Man number nine. You got Mackie and Byrne are at it again. Uh, it's, the issue, uh, you know, yeah. there's just something about the art that really bugs me. I don't know what it is. I think it's maybe that there's sparse details, a lot of kind of not well done backgrounds. Uh, it looks like they're kind of taking uh, shortcut, a lot of artistic shortcuts, and there's just not as much going on on the pages. You have the most ridiculous, as I said, kind of redesign of what uh, Doc Ock looks, which I really don't like. Um, and now uh, you are continuing the plot line of the stalker or someone who keeps calling P, um, sorry, MJ. Um, so that part's well done. But again, the art is really lackluster. Uh, you have this whole idea of this this character who's trying to go after Dr. Octopus, and he's what, Captain Power. The less said, the better. It's really just not very well done. Again, and the art is ridiculous. It's just, I don't know why, it just doesn't work. But it's re- it is interesting because you have MJ's on her way home, and this guy kind of knocks out uh, the cabbie who's on her way together, or sorry, at least... He knocks out this cabbie so he can get to the airport and hopefully pick up MJ. So that's that's really interesting. And you also have MJ still wondering what's going on with Spider-Man because thinking that it might be Peter, which I can't believe they've let it go on that long. Like, it just, it doesn't work for me to have Peter lying to MJ like that, especially for that long. Like Peter Parker, Spider-Man number nine, the horror returns, Venom is back. And I remember as a kid, again, 15, 16 years old, being like, yeah, it's going to be awesome. Because, again, my remembrances of Venom were a little bit more like Maximum Carnage, that kind of stuff. Um, so I was excited about the prospect of having him back. And you have the symbiote trying to, you know, figure something out and, like, being in transition itself. And it's creepy, and it's played more horror-like, which is that I really liked. Uh, you got John Romita Jr. doing the art. And I don't know if he'd really done a lot of Venom before, but it was kind of interesting having him do Venom. Um, and Spider-Man's kind of trying to find out what's going on with Venom, where the symbiote is. Uh, the symbiote's trying to get him. Um, it's very cool, and again, just having him fight the symbiote and being like, you know, where's Brock? You know, you, you, you know, we're not going to bond to each other. Doesn't really care that the symbiote's hungry. It's really cool stuff. Even you have Brock, you know, being very down on his luck, not sure what to do. Um, and then you know, Peter Parker beating up Brock and being like, thinking that he's he's the guy who's been calling and terrorizing him and MJ. And then the symbiote has tracked and followed Spider-Man to Brock. And Brock doesn't want to be Spider-Man. I uh, sorry, it'd be Venom, and have him like jump out a window trying to kill himself. And then, you know, he he disappears, and so does the symbiote. And Spider-Man doesn't know what's going on, but then eventually leaves, and he just has Venom show up and is like, "We're back. The fun's really going to start." And you know what? That's not a bad way to start an issue or start a storyline. You have you know uh, a villain who doesn't want to be with a symbiote anymore. The symbiote is hungering and needs to live, and it needs symbiosis to live, and needs Brock. Like that's kind of a, a cool concept to take and to try and make him more villainous. Um, you know, because he'd been such an antihero for a while, and this was a, a way of maybe trying to bring him back to the good old days. And I, I really like the cover to issue number ten, which is also the cover of this trade, because you have Spider-Man on top of um, oh sorry, being held by Venom, who's also holding up J. Jonah Jameson, and it looks like his on top of a church it just says cry venom cry ven- vengeance 
continues this cool story. You also have the the uh, Carnage symbiote uh, taken from Cletus Cassidy, uh, who actually shows like he's scared of uh, Venom, at least when he's under these gates and can't really use his other. And then. Um, you know, Venom takes out all these guards and then actually feeds on the Carnage symbiote, which is cr- kind of crazy and weird, and it's like kind of cannibalism, but it, it kind of works. And you have, again, more of this kind of weird flirtation with uh, Peter and Jill. I do like the Jill Stacy character. I kind of wish they would use her. Um, and, you know, they're getting ready for MJ to come back. They're putting up a welcome sign. They kind of, uh, he falls and she tries to catch him, and then there's this kind of moment together where they're kind of entangled with each other's bodies. Again, they keep trying to play up this weird flirtation angle. And I don't know if that part works, but I do like the idea that, you know, maybe there was chemistry with them. But it's also weird because, you know, he was in love with her cousin. But, you know, people fall in love with people's, uh, you know, uh, siblings, let alone, you know, someone. Oh, sorry, not their siblings. Their significant other siblings, let alone some their prior significant other's cousin, probably isn't that crazy or weird. Um, I do like there's a great uh, to-do list that Venom has here, which is uh, he has to kill his landlord, kill Spider-Man, get the symbiote back from Carnage, kill Spider-Man, destroy the Daily Bugle, kill Spider-Man, and kill Spider-Man. Um, so again, we got some really great stuff by John Romita Jr. because he knows these characters. He knows their world. Um, he knows how to make it forbidding. Like There's a great shot here where you have Eddie Brock uh, show up at the, at the Bugle and he's you know there to douse J. Jonah Jameson with water and take him hostage and take him to a church. And Again, it just it just works. It's thrilling. It's exciting. It's action-packed. This is everything you weren't getting in Amazing Spider-Man at the time. And even the cool idea of having the Carnage symbiote bleeding through the Venom symbiote, which is something we've kind of seen in other, other places in uh, Absolute Carnage. But uh, so not everything, you know, everything eventually comes around. There is a piece here that I don't think was ever really well done, where you have J. Jonah Jameson has the chance to unmask Spider-Man. And then they just kind of cut away from it, and then you never really know what happens after that. Uh, the issue does end, again, more with the stalker plotline. And I think this, again, the more I look at it, the stalker plotline works. Um, I don't like other elements of the Peter MJ stuff more that he's lying to her all the time, but I do kind of like the idea that, you know, there's this person who's coming for her and is threatening Peter, Um, which is, again, it's nice to not have it be about Peter, but it's someone who's just obsessed with MJ. Now, this isn't brand new. We'd seen this with uh, Jonathan Caesar back in the day, so it definitely evokes that kind of mentality and idea, and it kind of works. Um, it's never well carried through on, but at least when it was happening, I think it definitely felt interesting. And it it made MJ feel like she had a, not maybe a purpose, but she at least had a storyline of her own that was kind of independent of Peter. Um, although, again, he's self-absorbed enough to not think that, but it, I kind of appreciate that idea. Then you, get, then you switch back to Amazing Spider-Man. You get issue 11 by Mackie Byrne. The blob comes to town, and the art really takes a step well actually a step forward for what we've been getting previous but again compared to what we were getting in uh in peter parker spider-man it's nowhere near as good like i just don't know what was going on with burn it's it's kind of haphazard it's not that it's not that entertaining to look at the storytelling isn't always that clear it's just not great and again you have this idea of mj kind of worried about who's looking for her and then suddenly you know she gets picked up by by spider-man and um, then you have the weirdest transition possible. So Spider-Man picks her up. MJ's going to be okay. And she's obviously not going to be happy. She's already upset enough that you know, this person is coming for her and says that she, you know, she belongs to him. And then she's going to have to deal with her lying husband. But before we can deal with that, we get a, a nice lengthy text recap 
of what happened in Mighty Thor 17 and the Invincible Iron Man number 22, which, incidentally, I've actually talked about on two separate shows. Because um, I did a, a focus on the Mighty Thor Heroes Return era, as well as the Iron Man by Sean Chen and Kurt Busiek, um run. And so they both had issues as part of the eighth day. Um, so we skipped parts one and two here, but we have part three, um, which, again, picks up right from where... Um, the Amazing Spider-Man took off. And again, you have great art. you got John Romita Jr. doing it. I don't know how he was able to manage two books at the same time. He did some great pissed-off MJ. Because MJ should be pissed off. Because her husband shouldn't be lying to her about you know him being Spider-Man again. Like I just I did not like that decision. And then you very quickly move into Spider-Man being involved in the eighth day. And it's not great. It's okay. It's kind of forgettable. It's not a great storyline. And then I think there's like another chapter... Yeah, I guess there's like the big ending of the eighth day or the Juggernaut, the eighth day one shot, which is part four or four. And then you move into Amazing Spider-Man 12, which I have to say is probably the best John Bernard on, on this book. At least the, the first page especially is just so magical. You got this great kind of classic uh, Mysterio and Spider-Man. Um, that being said, then immediately you have all this like, white space in the f- future pages. But that first page was definitely exciting. But the rest of it, you have this weird redesign of the Electro's costume, which is, again, I don't know what's with blue and white, but, you know, Byrne seems to love that color scheme um, or just likes adding blue to characters like him or Scorpion. Uh, you have, the, again, that ridiculous redesign of Doc Ock with the giant metal like um, legs. You quickly realize that John Burton does not know how to draw Venom at all. It's one of the worst weird, like, fat Venom faces uh, in this issue. You do have a, a nice little uh, backup, which is all about who is uh, Mysterio by Howard Mackey and Sean Phillips of... of uh, well, Sean Phillips has done everything, but it's interesting to see him doing a Spider-Man story. And it's all about Mysterio and who's really Mysterio and did he really kill himself uh, in the um, Daredevil book. And then you have Peter Parker Spider-Man number 12, which is Return of the Sinister Six uh, Part 2. And again, you have so much better art. Uh, Venom looks actually scary here. Um, and again, you have a really cool kind of fight between the Sinister Six and... Uh, Spider-Man. You have more on the Senator Ward story, which again, just kind of goes a little bit crazy. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's just a lot about energy and explosions and blah, blah, blah. You have, uh, again, more of MJ trying to escape the person who's trying to abduct her. And that part, like, again, the art works. Like, the art uh, really sells how scary it is because you only ever see this guy in shadow. You have MJ is able to escape by, you know, spraying the guy in the face with pepper spray. She kicks out a, uh, a cab door, a cab window. She like jumps out the window. You know, she's like, clear the area. He's got a bomb. The taxi blows up. Just everything about how it's drawn is just so thrilling and exciting because you feel like there's actual tension because you're not really sure where this is going. How's, how's it going to work? And, you know, again, MJ should be safe when, you know, feel safe when Spider-Man shows up, but she's so pissed off at Peter that she doesn't feel that way. Um, and then you have a, a backup, which is all about how they kind of ruin Sandman forever uh, by having uh, the wizard kind of reset his personality. And I've never appreciated what they did to him there because I always liked that he was more of a heroic character. And they'd done so many better things that Tom DeFalco had started with the character um, and really pushed forward in his run. And, uh, you know, him working with Silver Sable, like all this cool stuff. And yet yeah, this takes it all away. And then next up and last up, and this one I'll be much more brief. It's Spider-Man, the next chapter, and it's volume three. And this is where it gets not... It gets worse. <laughs> Again, 
all the good stuff was basically the John Romita Jr. issues. Everything else is kind of a mess. But here we, we go in a direction that, you know, is, is kind of dumb. Um, so you have, the you know, the first issue here, issue 13, is basically the issue where MJ takes off. Uh, Peter isn't able to kind of say goodbye to her. Um, he thinks he's going to make it. He's not able to make it there. And she's on an airplane. And, uh, you know, he's sad that he missed her. And then she dies. Uh, the the whole thing blows up. And then it's like the end. And it's just like, what are you doing? So you just kill off MJ in a weird airplane accident? It feels like something out of a soap opera. Then you have uh, Peter Parker Spider-Man issue 13 by Mackie and Weeks. Um, and this is... I actually don't mind it. It's all about, you know, Carnage being kind of, again, a messed up individual. He's able to escape prison. He... Can't, doesn't have the symbiote anymore, but he wants to believe that he's still Carnage. So he gets paint and he, you know, dresses him, you know, paints himself red, and you know, starts to, you know, try and cause problems. And he ends up fighting Spider-Man, and it's kind of crazy and sad to see Carnage kind of reduced to that. But at the time, I, I remember thinking it was kind of interesting that you have this character who's so obsessed with being part of Carnage and being Carnage that it kind of makes sense that if he got separated from the symbiote because Venom ate it, that he would do something like this to kind of give into the he was already a crazy character to begin with so i kind of don't mind that um the la- at the end of this issue you do have spider-man finding out that mary jane died in the plane crash and it is an impactful moment it is you know completely a white page just peter and uh, ma in the middle him looking distraught and i have to say it does sell the grief at the moment i don't think anyone ever believed that she was really dead but they at least try to sell the grief at that moment. And that's kind of where the rest of this whole series kind of hinges on that moment. And it's kind of like, you know, they didn't want to get Spider-Man divorced because it's too much baggage. So somehow making him a widower for a year and a half was better. And, you know, it's just this weird Paul that kind of ends up being over the character for a long time. You have Maddie Franklin in the middle. I can't remember if this was before Spider-Woman started or not, um, but she had so many costumes in her own book. You have Peter looking like a hobo. You have Maddie Franklin going to you know kind of look in on him. Um, you have, again, the Charlotte Winter Spider-Woman shows up again. Actually, I take it back. So this is around issue 9 of Spider-Woman because it's part of a crossover, which I do forget because I don't think I ever maybe bothered to get it. Again, um, if you wanted to know that John Byrne really had lost it here and that Dan Green is not a good embellisher, it's the last couple pages of this book, because uh, this issue, because you have Spider-Man doing mouth-to-mouth with Maddie Franklin, her not really being... Like, basically waking up and making out with Peter. She is, what, 14, 15, maybe? Like, and she's, like, throwing herself at him. And it's this hideous, hideous shot of Maddie Franklin. This weird face is awful as she's totally coming on to Peter. It is atrocious. It is just pretend it didn't happen. Um, Speaking of, like, weird things you should pretend didn't happen, sealing what, I think what, I don't know, reading Spider-Woman number nine is awful as well. It was a book by John Byrne, but at least he wasn't penciling it. Um, he was just uh, writing it. He did the story. You had uh, Graham Nolan doing the pencils, and I gotta say, he's just a shot in here of Madame Webb's face, and I'm like, man, that is a, that is a good face. Uh, I feel like this, this kind of picks up from what we got in the issue of Amazing Spider-Man, but thankfully kind of avoids the worst parts of it, and uh, kind of, you know, just pushes Maddie back on her own and then you have Peter Parker Spider-Man number 14. You got Romita Jr.'s back. It's uh, you got Incredible Hulk as well. Again, this is all about Peter taking out his frustrations on the Hulk, who happens to be in town. And because obviously he's lost, you know, Mary Jane, and he's not even... Everyone's kind of grieving at his apartment, but he's not showing up because he's too busy fighting the Hulk and, and you know, trying to trying to hurt the Hulk. 
and he's talking through his own problems. And there's actually a really nice moment where the Hulk just kind of looks at him after, you know, Spider-Man's tried beating him up. His his hands are bloodied, and, you know, he's just been, like, wailing on the Hulk. And the Hulk can take it. And the Hulk just kind of looks at him and says, Bugman's wife dead, Hulk's wife dead too. Hulk, sorry. And I don't know why, but that always got me. It felt like, you know, this that's you know, the emotional... Uh, depth that those two characters are at, that they're both dealing with this immense pain at this moment. Um, and then you have Peter show up, and he's like, he missed everyone being there. And it's really interesting, because you have Peter saying, you know, basically being in denial. Everyone else is like, she's dead. And he's like, you'll see. She'll, you came back. He's talking to Aunt May. She will, too. And everyone's like, you know, basically saying, this is maybe isn't good. Like maybe you should come to grips with the fact that, you know, she is, she's gone. Now the end of the issue though is really interesting because you have him just sitting alone. You got uh, phone rings and him picking up and just someone saying she's alive. And again, the art is what sells this. It's melodramatic, crazy soap opera stuff, right? But you have John Romita Jr. With all conviction of his pencils, really making you believe in it. Uh, you have it's it's dark, it's moody, it, it feels emotional and resonant. The the last few panels, you have like just after someone says she's alive on the phone when Peter Parker's listening, you just have this great tight shot of just his eye as he's like you know like wait what and it just really works. And then you get back to some more burn. So we got him at issue fifteen. Is Mary Jane alive? And does the answer lie with Doctor Doom? So it's all about him thinking that MJ's alive and him taking off to go to Latveria to find out if maybe MJ really is alive. Uh, spoiler alert, she's not. At least not now. Um, and then again, it, it leads right into Peter Parker's Spider-Man, where it says, instead of his missing wife, Spidey finds Doom, and it's all a big Doctor Doom story with Spider-Man. And again, it works. Like, it's crazy to me that Howard Mackey is writing both books, and one issue is just kind of silly, and I don't know, like... The writing isn't as good or as solid, and the artwork is just messy and, and not enjoyable. And then you go into Peter Parker Spider-Man, and it's like a completely different story. So I feel like this entire period gets colored by people remembering the Amazing Spider-Man issues, because they weren't good. But the Peter Parker issues were much better. Um, and again, the art was great. And again, it wouldn't be that long after this where finally John Romita Jr. would get Amazing Spider-Man, because God knows, John Byrne didn't deserve it at this point, because it was just kind of a mess of a book. And his kind of disheveled um, tired Spider-Man or Peter doesn't work either. Um, you have an issue where the ghost shows up. It's all again about Peter being at this this lab, and he finally gets you know fired from Tricorp. And at that point, you're like, who cares? He's barely been here. The characters don't really matter. Uh, you never felt invested in what was going on at Tricorp, so it just kind of felt like, you know, who cares? And then Peter goes to a J. Jonah Jameson and is like, you know, I've got shots of Spider-Man. And then he's just told, like, he can't use them. And he wonders, does he know that I'm Spider-Man? Because, you know, months ago, we had that cliffhanger that never got resolved. And at this point, we don't know what's going on there. Uh, we go into the Amazing Spider-Man Annual 2000. This is by Howard Mackey and Klaus Janssen. I'll be honest, I don't really remember this, but uh, I remember it being feeling a little over-rendered, but in general, enjoying the story. You got Peter Parker's Spider-Man 16. You got Venom versus the Sandman, um, which would kind of have Venom starting to really mess with people. And so this is kind of a, a weird issue because you have stuff that I really hate. It felt like Venom was starting to get really depowered. At the moment, there's a, a part where uh, Spider-Man like, uses like a, a lighter to scare the symbiote and then like put some newspapers in fire, and that's really like causing the symbiote to go crazy. It just feels so bizarre. And you have all this kind of weird 
kind of bad luck stuff happening and Spider-Man being uh, at the whole issues is about he feels that being Spider-Man isn't great and it's bad luck finally by the end of the issues like being Spider-Man is kind of cool and then he ends up uh, uh, messing with uh, the things at Donuts and that's not never a good thing for anyone then you move into issue 17 so oh, I should say I believe that's the issue that I just mentioned where um, Venom at one point takes a bite, yeah, a bite out of Sandman, and that's going to have a lot of bad effects for for Sandman for a while afterwards. So issue seventeen of Amazing Spider-Man, you have a very creepy, creepy version of um, of Sandman, and I, I don't know what it is, but when you have a decomposing Sandman, suddenly John Burns doing good art. And then it goes back to you know the soap opera stuff that the stuff that's just not rendering very well. Peter Parker and his, and his world, even some of the Spider Man stuff, like it's just not very well done. Uh, next up, got Peter Parker Spider Man number seventeen by John Romita Jr. and Howard Mackey, and again completely sep- completely different. Like you have this ridiculous costume on Electro, which just just does not work when Romita does it. I don't know what, uh, sorry, when uh, Byrne does it, when Romita does it, it somehow works. It's a dumb color, but he's able to use the lighting effects to really make it look more that, like the white parts are just kind of being lit up by the electricity. Like, I don't know why, but it works. And having this whole Venom versus Sinister Six is also a pretty cool element of the story and how Spider-Man gets involved with Kraven. Like, again, these are good issues. Uh, then you go to Amazing Spider-Man number 18, and look, it's, it's Byrne again. And it's just, it's it's amazing how fast you go from good to bad, and you have a Green Goblin show up, and again, the art isn't that good on the Green Goblin. Um, issue 18 of, of Peter Parker's Spider-Man, you have a fantastic cover by John Reedy Jr. of Spider-Man unmasking a goblin. It just looks cool. Now, unfortunately, the interiors are by Graham Nolan, who actually does a pretty good job, but, and much better than Byrne, um, but is just not quite up to the... Um, uh, the abilities of John Reader Jr. There's a really hideous and scary, weird shot here where this this version of Spider, um, sorry, Green Goblin, starts to kind of disintegrate, and it's so messed up and really creepy looking. Um, and then you have issue 19 of Amazing Spider-Man by Howard Mackey and Eric Larson. That's right, Eric Larson comes back, and uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Like it's it's stylized. It got a great some great Venom shots. It got Spider-Man wearing the black costume and fighting against Venom. Um, Venom has a kind of a new reason to hate Spider-Man here because um, you know Anne ends up dying and uh, or killing herself, and so he blames Spider-Man for this. So at least it's a little bit better than the original reason why he hated Spider-Man. And then you have the next issue, which is um, you know some interesting stuff about Spider-Man kind of telling everyone that. MJ's alive, and then finally breaking down and believing maybe she's not. And he opens up this chest of her stuff, and he realizes you know he's going to miss her, and maybe he's has to start accepting things. Um, so again, if you could take anything away from the last hour, read the Peter Parker Spider-Man issues. They're great. There's they got some good stuff. Uh, they move stories along. I feel like Howard Mackey's at his best when he's able to just do what he does with Howard, with uh, John Romita Jr. They were a good creative team before the, the Clone Saga, sorry, during the Clone Saga, or during, near the end of it, as well as the post-Clone Saga issues, they worked together, and then they were working together here, and they just seem to get each other, and they work as a creative team. And then the John Byrne stuff is just a bit of a mess. Um, again, not great art, not great... The story stuffers, I think, from some of the plotting that you have... Um, John Byrne kind of working it on. Who knows how? Uh, I, I should go back and maybe talk to Howard at some point to find out just how detailed their collaboration was here. But as a as a reader, I just wasn't really much for it. And this was, you know, leads up to another uh, episode that I've already done, which is episode four eighty six. Sorry, not four eighty six. That's the wrong one. Um, 
whatever episode it was. Let me just check here. Episode 678. Uh, I did this back in May 2019, which was talking about Revenge of the Green Goblin and Spider-Man Light in the Darkness. Um, so it's kind of filling in the uh, the period that ends with um, the JMS run. So it's kind of crazy. You have all this weird, crazy stuff. And then when JMS comes on, really streamlines the book. And I think that's both good and bad. I do miss having a sprawling supporting cast. I like when there's a lot of characters around in Peter Parker's life and you feel like it is a true life and a world outside just him. Um, whereas I felt with, with JMS, it felt very, uh, you know, they laser focused on him, MJ and Aunt May. And at some point, sometimes to the detriment of the book, um, that it didn't feel like you had this larger microcosm anymore, uh, or sorry, macrocosm. You had this really small group of people that you're reading about instead of this world. And like, I was, I was flipping through an issue of, uh, Tom DeFalco and Ron French's amazing Spider-Man earlier today around the Hobgoblin saga of when Flash Thompson was thought to be the Hobgoblin. And there are so many subplots and other characters who don't really intersect with the main story, but you don't care because you're invested and you're invested in the world. And I don't feel like you get that once JMS really kind of uh, slices out the world and really. Fo- and he does put the focus back on the characters, and that's good. But again, sometimes at the detriment of having this this larger world, which is so exciting. Anyways, thanks for listening to me prattle on for God an hour um, about uh, these three trade paperbacks. Thanks, I, and again, I'm pretty sure it was AJ who helped me get these books originally. So thanks uh, to you, AJ, uh, for putting these terrible books on my shelf. They're not terrible. There's elements that are good. But, you know, it's a specific period of my life when I remember reading Spider-Man, and I didn't have a lot of frame of reference to realize how bad some of this was. I think even at the time, I was like, I'm not really enjoying Amazing Spider-Man, but this other stuff is pretty good. Um, and then once you get into, like, issue 20, like, you know, uh, John Byrne's gone, and you have, I guess, Howard Mackey and John Reader Jr., so they're working together well. Although, again... They don't really know where the book's going, and it starts to feel that way. And Peter Parker's Spider-Man becomes a completely different book, because now you have Paul Jenkins doing kind of one, one-off one stories, which are more introspective and cool, but definitely not about the larger narrative and really pushing forward uh, Spider-Man as a character, per se, in terms of his continuity. Um, and he was also working with uh, Mark Buckingham, who I think I appreciate much more now than I did at the time, but it's a very simple style, but uh, extremely expressive and really good. So anyways, thanks for listening to this episode. You can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate and review the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again. Bye-bye.